Amen. Church family, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Daniel chapter 7 in a moment. Uh, We will pick up here in our series. We just sang a song that I believe with all of my heart, whether we do it in our language or we do it in some type of heavenly language one day, that we will all sing before the throne of God with peoples and nations and languages from around the world. Uh, and it's with that that I want to start just briefly this morning and say, as has already been demonstrated to us, as uh, we've commissioned these three ladies to go and to work with the L family in Rwanda, uh, there is more that God is doing around our world that we get to be a small part of, and we want to celebrate that today. So as uh, Jay was praying for the ladies, Josiah, our uh, workers in uh, uh, in Rwanda, the L family sent me a text message and said, tell the people, we actually, uh, Great Joy Bible Church, which is the church plant that we're working with uh, there in Rwanda, baptized five more people today. That's over 30 people in the last six months that they've baptized as a part of that, as a part of that church. For, for the first time, this is also something to celebrate, for the first time, one of the young men that we are working with uh, to raise up as elders at that church participated in the baptism as an elder. And so Josiah's been doing the baptisms there, uh, but now one of those men, Eric, has come alongside of him to do that as we transition away from our missionaries kind of leading there to these guys leading there. Uh, there's been a team of people there from First Baptist Norfolk and from Catalyst Church, which is up on the peninsula. Uh, working with the L family. They got to be with great joy this morning. And then following right behind them is going to be a team here from Nanswin River. So God is doing great things there in Rwanda. But let me tell you about something that's happening this morning for the first time here in Virginia. So uh, many of you will remember about six months ago, our church voted to join what is known as the Pillar Network, which is a group of like-minded uh, churches that partner together for the purpose of church planting and revitalization. And this morning... River City Baptist Church will host their very first worship service in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Matt Smethurst is the uh, pastor and the church planter of that church. This is now the closest um, pillar church plant to us. Before now, the closest pillar church plant was all the way in D.C. So we now have one only about an hour and a half or so away. Uh, with Over the last few months, two additional churches from here in Hampton Roads have joined the pillar network. And I was able two weeks ago to meet with the pastors uh, from those two churches. And we've started talking and praying together about how we can plant and revitalize churches right here in Hampton Roads and to how we could work with Matt as a part of what he is doing and what the Lord is doing at River City Baptist Church in Richmond. So this morning, after I read our text, we're going to pray for this church as they meet together for the very first time uh, there in Richmond, and we're going to pray for what God is doing around the world, and we can just be grateful that we get to be a small piece of that. I'll invite you to stand with me now. As we turn our attention to Daniel chapter 7, for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to read the first vision from Daniel 7, which is the first eight verses. This is the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one like a bear, it was raised up on the side. 
It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw, uh, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning that we can gather here in this place to worship you. And I am so grateful for the people of God at Nansman River Baptist Church how you use us together to make disciples of one another. And God, we are grateful for how you use us to make disciples of the nations. We thank you, God, for the work that you are doing through our partnerships all over the world. And we celebrate, God, new life in Christ that was celebrated at Great Joy Bible Church in Rwanda this morning. And we celebrate, God, with River City Baptist Church, a new church, a new community of faith in Richmond who will meet together for the first time. God, would you create a legacy of gospel disciple-making there at that church as you have done here at this one? Thank you, Father, for all the ways that you are using us for your glory in your kingdom. Father, as we now turn our attention to Daniel 7, will you help us because we need help? Will you help me? Because I need help as we look into these visions. Lord, let us not see things that are not there, but let us see what is there. Let us see you and your kingdom, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled, A Clash of Kingdoms, because this is what we will see in this vision today. For those of you, and I have, I have had so many of you uh, wanted to talk with me and, and compliment, and uh, more so than, than normal, I think, um, the first six sermons in Daniel. Well, as I warned you when we first began this series, uh, this series really preaches in two parts. The first six chapters and the second and the last six chapters are very different. What we have considered primarily up to this point, outside of maybe Daniel chapter 2, has been narrative. And even Daniel chapter 2 is told within the context of narrative. What we see in Daniel 7 through 12 is not narrative. It is, we would loosely define it as prophecy. Even though the, the Hebrew Bible did not categorize Daniel, and the, the Israelites did not categorize Daniel specifically as prophecy, because it stands unique. It stands as different from much of the rest of prophetic literature in, particularly in the Old Testament. Its closest cousin in the scriptures is not found in the Old Testament, but the new, the book of Revelation. Daniel is prophecy. It is. It is looking forward to, it is speaking a prophetic word from the Lord it is in many ways looking towards future events, which not all prophecy looks towards future events, but much of the second half of Daniel does. But it uses 
Uh, It uses a type of literature that we are not very familiar with. It's known as apocalyptic literature. The two main places that we see apocalyptic literature in the scriptures is Daniel and Revelation. It's not the only place, but it is the primary two. But apocalyptic literature was very popular in uh, the, during the time of the exile and the intertestamental period. There were a lot of apocalyptic literature that was, that was written during this period of time. Two of those pieces inspired by God here in Daniel and then later in the Revelation of John at the end of the New Testament. But we have to approach apocalyptic literature uh, with some caution. We have to approach it with caution because we run the risk of seeing things that aren't there, of breaking it down so small into its minute little pieces and ascribing every little piece some type of modern day correlation to where what we've ended up doing is deconstructing the vision. Some of you probably would have wanted me to really slow down here at Daniel 7 and maybe preach three or four different sermons in this chapter. And and be honest with you, I I had that temptation because there's a lot that is contained here. But I truly believe we're supposed to see this whole chapter as one whole. And if we only break it apart into a we end up doing is missing the whole. As one writer wrote about this, these next six chapters while introducing this one, he said, what we're going to see here is the sovereignty of God in sci-fi. Because <laughs> that's, that's really what a, a good description of what apocalyptic literature is. This is fantasy and science fiction. This is video games and Hollywood. Now, it's still the word of God, but it is unique and different. It is supposed to be at the same time both terrifying and comforting. We're going to see images that we rarely see in the rest of Scripture. And while we may at times think that is confusing and and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Ultimately, particularly here in chapter seven, we're given an explanation and the explanation needs to be good enough for us. So as we walk through this, I am not going to say everything some of you are going to want me to say. I have to preach this from a very specific bent and that's what I'm going to attempt to do here while recognizing that there are even some things in this text that in my own theology and understanding, I may not be right about. I'm going to be dogmatic about the things I think the text is really clear about and less so about the ones that maybe some disagreement could arise. But let's look at this text and see what I believe the Lord is revealing to Daniel. First, the beastly kingdoms of the earth. This is the first of three visions, what I believe to be concurrent visions that Daniel receives from the Lord. We're given the time frame here. This is, this is backwards now. This was, happened before Daniel was put in the lion's den. It was in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So in chapter five, we saw the fall of Babylon to the, the Medo-Persian empire. Well, Daniel is now looking backwards The narrative text is done. It ends with Daniel in uh, the lion's den and freed by God from the lion's den. But now Daniel's going back several years 
and is going to reveal to us these three visions that he had, these visions of the night he had as he lay on his bed, we are told. And we're told that this is the sum of the matter, that Daniel's gonna tell us everything that he saw, that's what that means, in these three visions and how these three visions connect to one another. The first vision is a vision that Daniel sees where the four winds of heaven, this is north, south, east, and west, blow upon the sea and cause a great stirring within the sea. And as we read at the beginning of the sermon, this blowing and great stir within the sea causes four different beasts to rise up out of the sea. Now, this, this winds from the four corners of the earth, from the four winds of heaven, this is representing the sovereignty of God, that the, the rising up of these beasts is the work of God. And that has been one of the primary themes in the book of Daniel, is that the Lord controls kingdoms and empires. I have stressed that to you over the last six weeks, and we'll continue to see that as we move into this apocalyptic section of Daniel. The Lord is in control. And it is the Lord's wind that is stirring up the sea. The sea is not actually the sea, even though the sea is what Daniel envisions here. The sea is the peoples of the earth. The sea, this tumultuous waves crashing against one another is the vision that Daniel has of people and and the nations and, and tribes of people. And out of those conflicting tribes of people rise up four different worldly kingdoms, each one represented by a beast that Daniel sees. These beasts are in some ways going to seem familiar to us and in other ways are going to seem certainly like mythological creatures. The first beast that Daniel sees is a lion, but it is not only a lion, it is a lion with eagle's wings, we're told in verse four. And at some point, those wings were plucked off And it was lifted up from the ground, we're told, and and was made to stand on two feet like a man, and the the mind of a man was given to it. This first beast represents the kingdom of Babylon. And what we're told here in this vision that we see, that Daniel sees and records for us, is, is the retelling of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who in his pride had had exalted himself over the things of God and God had humbled him and plucked him down and made him actually go out into the fields and live like a beast. But eventually his mind was restored to him like the mind of a man. And so Daniel at the very end, this is when this is happening, the very end of uh, the Babylonian empire looks backwards in this vision and sees Babylon. If you'll remember back to Daniel chapter two, a similar vision uh, is given to Nebuchadnezzar and is a vision of a statue and the top of that statue was gold representing Nebuchadnezzar. Here it is the lion with eagle's, eagle's wings that represents Babylon. The second is that of a bear. We're told in verse five, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise and devour much flesh. This is the event that takes place in chapter 
five, where the Persian, and with the handwriting on the wall, where the Persian Empire comes and defeats Babylon. The second beast represents the Persian Empire of antiquity. At that time, it was actually two sides. The Medes and the Persians were, were joined together to create what we know as the Persian Empire. This is why Daniel sees the bear raised up on one side, because when the empire began, it was two equals, but eventually the Persians dominate the Medes, which is why even today, in our histories, we refer to this as the Persian Empire, rarely as the Medo-Persian or the Empire of the Medes and the Persians, because the Persians dominated. This bear has three ribs in his mouth. Now, there's some discussion and, and disagreement over what these ribs might be. I think the best illustration and the best explanation of what these three ribs are are three additional kingdoms that, that the Persian Empire conquered, one being Babylon, one being the Lydian kingdom of Asia Minor, and the other being the Egyptian kingdom of North Africa. The Persians expanded their empire not only into Babylon, but west and south into Asia and into, or sorry, east and south into Asia and into Africa. It devoured much flesh. It spread further than the Babylonian empire had spread. Then in verse six, we're given the third beast. The third beast is that of a leopard. But the leopard doesn't have two wings like the lion had. It actually has four wings like birds on its back. And the beast had four heads. The dominion was given to it. The picture of this third beast is that of a swiftly moving animal. A leopard is already one of the fastest animals in the animal kingdom. And what happens is this leopard is given four wings and four heads. This is a terrifying image. This is the image of the Persian, uh, not of the Persian empire, of the kingdom of Greece. This is Alexander the Great, who 200 years after Daniel writes this, sees this vision, would swiftly conquer the Persian empire, creating for themselves a empire of Greece. This all correlates with what Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel chapter two, the head representing Babylon, the, the torso the upper portion of the body in, in silver representing Persia, the middle section of the body uh, of bronze representing Greece. This is, this is representing the same kingdoms. These are the kingdoms of the beastly kingdoms of antiquity. But before we get, and, and, and in my explanation, I'm trying to get very specific because I think clearly this is who Daniel says, not what every commentator and every biblical scholar sees, but the, the majority kind of agree here on these three, that this is, this is who these beasts represent. But there is something bigger, I think there's a bigger picture that we need to understand that's going to help us as we move later into the text. Yes, these beasts, I believe, represent Babylon, Persia, and Greece, but they're more than that. There's a reason that Daniel sees these apex predators. There's a reason that he sees a lion, a bear, and a leopard, right? Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. It's supposed to scare us. There's a reason nations still today choose apex predators to represent them. Russia is represented in what? The bear. America is represented in what? The eagle. Let me see if I can fool you. China is represented in what? 
dragon. It's, it's, it's mythological, but still, an apex predator, right? There's nothing hunting dragons. There's nothing hunting eagles. There's no, right? These, these are the, the animal kingdom's apex predators. They're feared in their territories. Nothing hunts them. They hunt things. And these beastly kingdoms, while they do represent specific kingdoms of antiquity, actually tell us about the beastly kingdoms of the world, not just about Babylon and Persia and Greece. It tells us about worldly empires, that the empires of this world will always, because of sin, seek to devour that which is good. They will seek to gain for themselves more territory. They will seek to gain for themselves more power. They will seek to gain for themselves more influence. That's what kingdoms of the world do. And so in these beasts, yes, we see specific empires. But bigger than that, we see the rule of mankind on this earth as man seeks to become like God, to exalt himself above all else. This is what we see in the first three beasts. But then a fourth beast arise in this vision that is different from all of the others. Verse seven, Daniel saw in the night vision. So we're, we know it's different because now he says, I saw in the night vision. It's the same vision, but he's separating it. And behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. He uses some adjectives here that he doesn't use about the first one. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And then we're told it was different from the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So there's two parts of this vision both distinct from the beasts that we had seen before, these beasts that represent these three kingdoms of antiquity, but also are showing us the rule of man on the earth. And here, this fourth beast, unique, different, terrifying and dreadful, exceeding, exceedingly strong. You'll notice that this isn't a lion, that this isn't a bear, that this isn't a leopard. This is, we, we have no animal kingdom description here other than pieces of the puzzle. Great iron teeth, we're told, that can devour and break into pieces, stamped with its feet, 10 horns on its head. So this is the, the first part of this vision is this great, I envision a dragon. I don't know what you envision. That's what I envision, probably being influenced by revelation. I, I envision this dragon, this, this great beast rising up out of the sea, these 10 horns that are torn its head. That's the first side. Then we're told that he, he, in verse eight, he considered the horns. And as, as Daniel's looking at these horns and, and when it says he's considering the horns, it means he's inspecting, he's trying to determine what in the world this means. And three of them, something happens to three of them. Three of them are plucked out and a smaller horn arises out from the middle of them. And now his attention turns to this smaller horn and it has eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that speaks great things. So there is a kingdom different than the first, the first three that is going to arise. It's gonna have some unique characteristics. It's going to be 
terrifying and dreadful. It's going to have great iron teeth. It's going to have feet that stamps people out, right? This is already a bad thing. And then it's got these 10 horns on its head and who knows what, right, this is all about. And then three of them come out and another smaller one comes off. And this smaller one has eyes and a mouth and it starts talking. Are you terrified yet? Daniel is this fourth beast. Like the three previous and what we had already seen in Daniel chapter 2, in one sense represents the Roman Empire, the fourth and last great empire of the world, which would spread out across the known world, which would be as strong as iron. But that is not the only thing that the fourth beast represents. Because something has to be done with these horns that are on its head and this, particularly this little horn that arises out. So this beast is different and it represents more than just this one kingdom, this one Roman kingdom. Now, I'm going to pause there. We're going to look at the other two visions. We're going to come back to the little horn, okay? So I promise you, I'm going to give you more on the little horn when we come back to the explanation of the vision. But let's look at the next two visions, standing before the ancient of days. Now, let me give you another just word of edification quickly. These first beasts are intended to be terrifying. This first vision, terrifying beasts, right? That's, that's what we're supposed to see. We need to read these as concurrent and time-spanning visions, meaning these next two are happening at the same time, that these things are overlapping one another. And they're spanning the course of human history right? And so Daniel isn't seeing like events that happen one after another. Daniel's seeing events that are, that are overlapping one another. And our, our temptation is to really want to focus on those beasts because we think we have a really good grasp of what these next two visions are when the point is actually the next two visions, and so to just focus on the beasts and not on what happens in these next two visions is to miss the point entirely. So let's look at these. Let's give some attention. First, the beasts stand before the ancient of days. Look at verse nine. And as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. His wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And a thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then before the sound of the great word that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burned and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So this second vision, Daniel undoubtedly sees the Father. Now, this isn't a vision of the Father. He doesn't actually see God the Father. He sees a vision of God the Father, and in this vision, everything that he sees about God the Father represents and means something. His clothing, pure as white. His clothing, white as snow, representing the purity of God. His head, like uh, hair of his head, like pure wool, representing his, uh, his wisdom. His throne of fire, representing his righteous judgment. On wheels of fire, meaning there is no restriction to his judgment. There is nowhere that anyone can flee from the judgment of God. This is the second vision that Daniel sees. It should be equally as terrifying, by the way, 
Even though we understand, we're approaching this from a Christian perspective, understanding who God is, I hope, understanding the, the love of God and the great things that God has done to restore mankind to himself, but just put yourself in this vision for a minute. Here you have these four great beasts that arises from the sea, and the next thing you know is the Ancient of Days, in all his splendor and glory, riding on a throne of fire with wheels of fire comes into the scene. Imagine Daniel's awe and wonder here in this moment as he sees God about to stand in judgment. And then what happens in verses 11 and 12? In verses 11 and 12, the two visions come together. And the little horn is still doing what the little horn does. The little horn is still mouthing off, we're told. He's still speaking, right? And Daniel says he's still speaking these great things. Obviously, by speaking great things, lots and lots of people are listening to him. But when you compare that to what's been said about God, that thousands and thousands and tens of tens times tens of thousands are serving him, there's great dominion that the Ancient of Days has, far greater than that of this little horn. And not only the little horn, but all of the beasts are brought before him and we're told the books are opened. And what's happened? And I looked before the sound of the great word that the horn was speaking and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burned with fire. And for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So this is an image of God judging the kingdoms of this world where God stands in judgment over Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, but it's greater than that. It is God standing in judgment over all of the kingdoms of the earth. It is God standing in judgment over the last kingdom of the earth that will one day come and persecute Christians. And notice how swift his judgment is. Notice with what ease God dismisses the kingdoms of this world. Notice how he kills the beast with fire. Notice how even in his providence, he allows the other three beasts to lose their dominion, but still remain some of their influence. We see this today. Again, th this is vision that spans time. There are things in our culture today that we still owe to the Babylonians. There are things in our culture today we owe to the Greeks. The, the Greeks. There are things in our culture today that we, that we still owe to the Persians. Because their influence has, has still lasted. But not the influence of that little horn. Whoever that little horn is, and I'm going to get to him in a minute, his, his influence is going to be totally and completely cut off in that moment. But then there's a third vision where the Son of Man stands before the Ancient of Days. Look at verses 13 and 14. And I saw in the night vision. So again, Daniel's giving a dividing line for us, but these are concurrent visions, they're overlapping. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there's one that looks like a man who comes before the throne of God, pure as white snow, throne of fire who has just defeated all of the kingdoms of the earth and steps before him a man, or at least one like a man. And what happens? 
He's then judged too. This is the judgment seat of God. This man is judged where the nations failed. This man succeeds. And what is given to him is all of the kingdoms and all of the people and all of the nations of the earth. He, get, he has a dominion that is everlasting. Their dominions are limited, but his dominion is everlasting. It shall never pass away. It shall never be destroyed. All of the kingdoms of this earth are destroyed, but not the son of man. That begs what I think is the most important question of Daniel chapter 7. The mo- Hear me. The most important question of Daniel chapter 7 is not who is the little horn. I know it's probably what you want to know. The most important question of Daniel 7 is who is the son of man? If we miss that, we've missed the whole point. We might as well just go home. Who is the son of man? And listen, it, from the time of the writing of Daniel through the time of Jesus in the New Testament church, the, Lots of people came up with lots of ideas. Some thought maybe Daniel was the son of man. Some thought a a, a deceased prophet would rise again and become the son of man. Some thought the son of man represented Israel herself, restored to her glory. But here's what we know. We know who the son of man is because the son of man identified himself to us. The son of man was the favorite way of Jesus of referring to himself. In Mark chapter two, Jesus is healing a man. He goes to heal this man. He's, he's a man that can't move. And he, and he goes to this man. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, whoa, what do you think you're doing, buddy? <laughs> you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, isn't it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Look at Mark two. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So for the first time, Jesus identifies himself with the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7. And here's it. The Son of Man has the ability to forgive sins. This is what we know of the Son of Man. Then we fast forward to Mark chapter 8, where Jesus is going to tell us something else about the Son of Man. He says, and I began to teach them. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. So there was a misunderstanding about the son of man in Jesus's day. And Peter had that misunderstanding. Peter thought the son of man was going to come and conquer the kingdoms of this earth. But Jesus is saying the Son of Man is going to suffer many things, be rejected by the rulers of this earth, and actually be killed. So Jesus begins to turn the tables of how we're supposed to think about the Son of Man. Then we get to Mark 14. Jesus is on trial in Mark 14 in front of the religious rulers of the day. And the high priests, we're told in Mark 14, 60, stood in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. It was his claim to be the son of man, Daniel 7. It was Jesus' claim to fulfill Daniel 7 that led the high priest, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to turn him over to Rome to be crucified. It's important for us to identify the son of man 
And know this, the Son of Man is Jesus the Messiah. There is no other option. There is no other choice. There is no other interpretation. To rightly understand Daniel 7 is to know this, Jesus Christ is the Son of Man who stood before the Ancient of Days. Jesus Christ is the one who has received a kingdom that is everlasting and dominion that knows no end. Jesus is the Son of Man. You say, okay, when did Daniel 7 then happen? Let me tell you when Daniel 7 happened. It happens in Acts chapter 1. Some people think what's being described in Daniel 7 with the Son of Man is yet to happen. It's not yet to happen. It's already happened. Notice the language of Daniel chapter 7 with this vision of the Son of Man. One is presented to, one comes to the Ancient of Days. He's not coming from the clouds. He will eventually come from the clouds as Jesus described there in Mark. But in this, he's coming with the clouds to the Ancient of Days. When does this happen? It happens in Acts 1. We're told in Acts chapter one, so when they'd come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons the father is fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went and behold, two men stood by them with white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken away from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Yes, Jesus will come back, but this ascension matters. What's being described in Daniel 7 is actually the ascension of the Son of Man to heaven. Jesus, sent by God, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, dies a sinner's death, is raised to life and ascends to the Father. And here's what happens. He's taken before the Father on that cloud. He stands before the Father and the Father gives to him all dominion and all power and all authority. This is why Jesus can say, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is the son of man who has all dominion. Then the visions are over and Daniel's going to ask a question. What in the world does all this mean? Now, You'll notice I'm not close to being done yet. I just need you to hold on with me, okay? And small group leaders, I apologize. But we gotta figure out the meaning of this vision. The culmination of the beastly kingdoms and the limited reign of the little horn. We've gotta define who this little horn is. First, 15, 16, 17. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was with me. My spirit within me was anxious and the vision of my head alarmed me. Daniel's alarmed, we should be alarmed. What in the world? I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who will arise on the earth. The beastly kings of this earth will dominate the people with evil intent. This is what we see in Babylon, in Persia, in Greece, and in Rome. That is, they represent these kingdoms and these kingdoms in a broader way represent all of the kingdoms of the earth. This is what humans do. Pick up with me in verse 19. I'm going to read a, a long section here, so stay with me. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed 
uh, greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, so he's going to be given an answer. As for the fourth beast, those previous verses, 19 through 22, is Daniel describing what he saw. Now he's going to be answered. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all, uh, from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall, and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. So Daniel describes his vision, this vision of this fourth beast, this vision of this 10 horns and this small horn that arises and says, you got to tell me what this is about. And what Daniel is told is that out of the remains of this fourth beast will rise one who fulfills this vision. Paul describes him in his letters to the Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness. John describes him in, um, in his in 1 John and in the book of Revelation as the Antichrist, that this is the one who will stand against God's people in the last days. His impact will be terrifyingly great, but limited in time. Now, let me give you a warning. There are a lot of places that you could go and get a lot of really intricate detail concerning the 10 horns and 10 kings and three that fall and the little horn. And they're gonna to wanna to give you times and places. They're gonna give you geographical locations. They're gonna give you boundaries. They're gonna give you names. They're gonna give you all kinds of stuff. I think that gets really dangerous with apocalyptic literature. If that's what you were wanting from me today, I'm sorry, I am, I am not playing that game. Because everyone who has attempted that up until now has failed, okay? And there have been those that have tried to paint this as Roman emperors. There have been those that have tried to paint this uh, as Napoleon. There have been those that have tried to paint this as Hitler. There are people that try to paint this as Ronald Reagan, okay? And everybody that has tried to ascribe the little horn to an actual person in history has always failed. But know this, find comfort here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, in the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John, writing 1900 years ago, says, we know we're in the last hour because small Antichrists have already come and one is yet to come. And so, yes, church, across the ages, Antichrists have arisen. People have arisen who fit this bill. And that's okay. They've arisen, they have persecuted God's people, and then God has put an end to their reign. And yes, in all likelihood, another is coming, that one will arise. And for a period of time, a time, times, and half a time, however you want to think about that. Some people think that means three and a half years. It can, it doesn't have to mean that. But for a, a limited period of time, this person will have great dominion. He'll speak evil things about God and he'll persecute the saints of God. But if we, if we get so fixated on who that person is without seeing what the result of his life is, we've missed the point. 
What is the point of Daniel 7? The point of Daniel 7 is that the ancient of days puts an end to this guy's nonsense and raises up the son of man for all time. That is the point. So is there a still uh, an accuser of God's people, an antichrist who is to rise before the end time? Very possibly. I would say uh, if we take the culmination of scripture, likely. I don't have time to go here. It's not in your, just read, go home today and read Revelation 13. In light of what I've told you about Daniel chapter seven, you're going to see a lot of the same imagery used differently. And what you're ultimately going to see is the rise of an end time beast or the rise of one who kind of is the culmination of earthly power. And the same thing is going to happen to him that happens to these others. That is what? His time is going to be limited. And God is going to have the final say. And Jesus, the son of man, is going to be exalted above all else. And what we, where, John in, or where, where Daniel ends is with the finality of the Lord's judgment and eternal nature of his kingdom. Look at verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. So whoever this little horn is, his judgment is coming for him. Like judgment is coming for the kingdoms of this world. Then we see in Daniel 7, verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. And the kingdom, in verse 27, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth, heaven, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The end of the matter is this, that the kingdom of the son of man will far outlast the kingdoms of this world. No matter how great and terrifying they may seem in the night vision, the judgment of God destroys them all. So what? Christ's everlasting kingdom has triumphed and will triumph over the beastly kingdoms of this world. This is what we are to take away from Daniel chapter 7 is that yes, kingdoms in this world will arise. Kingdoms in this world will seek their own glory and they will persecute the saints of God, but it will be but for a limited amount of time. And the kingdom of Christ is an everlasting kingdom that has both triumphed, past tense, has happened, and will triumph, future tense, will happen, now and not yet, over all of the kingdoms of this world. Revelation 19 provides us the final image of this triumph. We're told in Revelation 19, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire on his head are many diadems, these are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called the word of God and the armies of heaven. 
Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for, for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who is its presence and has done the signs of which he has deceived those who have received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came out from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Here's the picture that John gives us at the end of Revelation. It's the same picture that Daniel gives us in Daniel 7. These earthly kingdoms think they can stand against God's kingdom of heaven. And one day, the son of man will return. And out of his mouth will come the word of God, which will destroy the kingdoms of this world. Folks, we often picture the last great battle as actually being a battle. It's not. <laughs> not to tell you the end, right? But let me just spoil the story for you. It's not going to be a battle at all. It's going to be a rout. When the kingdom of God comes to earth, the consummated kingdom of God, which has already been established in his church, when Christ Jesus, the son of man returns, there will be none who can stand against him. There will be none who will be able to fight a battle against him. They will all fall to the point where John says, and all of the birds of the earth will be filled with the flesh of their bodies, which fall before the son of man, Christ's everlasting kingdom to which we can be a part will rule and reign forever and the kingdoms of this world will be no more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can in faith believe and know in our hearts with assurance that these kingdoms of the world will not prevail the wickedness of this world will not prevail. The little horns of this world will not prevail, even though they may seem to for a period of time. One day your books will be opened. One day your judgment will be sure. And your kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom, will reign forever. And your saints will reign with you. Thank you, God, for this assurance that we find in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship our King.